This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I get the final approach clearance and I intercept the RNAV 2-3 and I switch over to tower and I get on the radio and I say, you know, Lawrence Tower, Skyhawk 619 is, is with you on the RNAV 2-3. And all I hear is Skyhawk 619 are cleared and boom, that's when it happened. Immediately, all of my electrical system is gone. No indication, no warning, just gone. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is New Hampshire pilot Derek Jones. Derek's a private pilot, IFR rated. He's got about 800 hours flying general aviation aircraft, and he owns a slew of airplanes, a 1946 Air Coupe, a 76 Cessna 172, a 63 Cherokee 180, and a 1971 Cessna 150. Derek's going to share a story with us today flying IFR in IMC conditions in his 172 where things got a little hairy. Derek, thanks for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Richard. Real excited. Yeah, so I'm interested in your story, especially we have a whole campaign this year around uh, VFR and IMC flying, and so I'm anxious to hear your story today. Do you mind share your story with us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this all starts out with a move from uh, Virginia to New Hampshire and transporting my 1946 Air Coupe, as you mentioned, to New Hampshire, and when it got here, it needed some maintenance. And um, so I brought it over to the Lawrence Municipal Airport in, in Massachusetts, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and uh, dropped the air coupe there for some work. And uh, during the time it's getting worked on, I get a call from the uh, the IA that, uh, hey, we really need the logbooks. And uh, I said, oh, sure, I can get those over to you. And so um, I work about 10 minutes from Nashville, New Hampshire Airport, where, where my 172 is. And I said, uh, I got the logbooks in the car. And I think I'll bring them right over to you. And uh, it was a perfect IFR day and for a multitude of reasons. And so there I was, find myself on my way to the airport to bring some logbooks uh, over to Lawrence Municipal Airport in IFR conditions. So went over to Nashua, did my pre-flight as I normally do. And, and I'm someone that spends a lot of time on pre-flight. Uh, one of my instructors taught me, you know, this is your opportunity to get out of dying. And, and so spend a little extra time on your pre-flight and, and uh, heavy on checklist usage. So, Hey, Derek, do you mind? Let me interrupt you a second. Where were you flying from and to? I like to follow along in four-flight as you go. So um, do you mind giving me the identifiers? Yeah, so it's a KASH, Alpha Sierra Hotel, 
and flying to LWM. Okay. Which is, you'll probably see on four flight, a pretty short jaunt. Oh, there it is. That's why, that's why I was missing it. In fact, it is. I've been into Nashua, New Hampshire. I think that's the airport where Pilot Workshops operates out of. You got it. It is. Yeah, great. And by the way, I'll put a plug in for those guys. That Pilot Workshops are great. They put out great material with scenarios, I think, every month. So, yeah, good absolutely. stuff. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, so, so I head over, pre-flight the airplane, follow the checklist to a T, check weather again one more time. And I normally will not, like I said, I, I love flying IMC. I, I spend a lot of time in IMC. I stay very, very current. And I normally won't go if the conditions are lower than circling mins. And the reason for that is you never know what you're going to run into. I, I've been on IFR long, IFR cross countries, commuting between Virginia and New Hampshire you know, while I was living in Virginia, working in New Hampshire, commuting back and forth. And some of those flights could be hard IMC for, you know, a 3.5. And the weirdest things happen uh, with weather, right? And all of a sudden, you know, weather has changed drastically. And, and so I tend to, I tend to take the road of, you know, if it's a flight you're going to do, um, at least before you get off the ground, have circling mins at the airport you're leaving, at least, especially if you need to get back in in an engine failure. Okay, that helps. So just to clarify, you like to make sure you have circling mins from your departure airport, not necessarily your arrival airport. Yeah, I think the arrival, right, it depends. I mean, I'd like to see circling mins at the arrival, right, if the winds change or, or what have you, and you do have to do a circle of land, you know, it's nice to have that room. If I'm in route and the weather changes to getting close to actual mins on an ILS approach, then we'll deal with it when we get there. But but ideally, if, if I'm going somewhere, you know, especially on a short hop like the National Lawrence, right, I, I want it to be circling mins. I mean, for such an easy, you know, which is the whole there I was, right, it's for such an easy flight, yeah. it, it should be. I was looking for circling mins that day. But, yeah, circling mins at the airport. Yeah, you know, that, that's an interesting it sounds like you've set that up as a real sort of tripwire for yourself, that circling minimums, any time that's less than that, you kind of step back and pause and think, okay, do I need, really need to make this trip? It's really a decision point for you. Yeah, it is. And, and it's not because it's beyond my ability to fly in less than circling mins, right? Um, right. It right, really yeah. is just the whole, oh, do I have to do this, right? Can yeah, I wait yeah. until tomorrow? What's the weather look like tomorrow? Well, it looks marginal VFR versus low IFR. Well, okay, why don't we just wait for that? And that's generally around circling men's or generally in the neighborhood of 700 feet, two miles, something like that, right, is, is, right. is typically where you'd find circling men. So that's, a, that's an interesting criteria to think about, and I think a pretty good technique, actually. Yeah, so, and, and and I'll tell you, I don't focus on the visibility as much on the circling winds as I do the actual cloud layer and, and where its bases are, right? You know, if I if I have enough visibility, you know, I might go a little bit lower than two, but but not much, right? I mean, one and three quarter, uh, yeah, okay, um, that's close enough for, for circling winds for me, and I've got the cloud height that I need. So, um, on this particular day, going from Nashville to Lawrence, Nashville was overcast... Uh, 700 and uh, Lawrence was overcast 800, which gave me plenty of cloud room if I needed it. But it was kind of a off and on showery type day. So I kind of had in the back of my mind, you know, th these clouds could come down a little bit here and there. And, and I'm okay with that, right? I have a 
the winds were out of the south that day. So I'm going to take off runway 14 at Nashua, which points directly at Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to intercept the RNAV. I'm going to expect to intercept the RNAV 23 in, into Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And knowing that if, you know, I had to circle uh, or land on a different runway, I, I could uh, with the the layer the way it was. Yeah. This short flight is kind of, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to that, isn't there? Because on the one hand, it's only a short flight. On the other hand, it is a short flight and things are going to happen very quickly in an IFR environment, taking off, flying the departure, getting ready for the approach and all of that, right? Yeah, you got it. And, and what's interesting is um, Boston Tracon, right? Shout out to them. They're one of the greatest uh, controllers I've had to work with, but they are quick. And when I came off the end of the runway that day, and I think I was in IMC, a little bit lower than they were calling. And I remember that was my first kind of, huh, that's interesting. I, I guess I was right. It must be coming down a little bit. When they kicked me over to departure, I mean, they, they were already setting me up for the RNAV, put me on vectors almost immediately. And, and part of the reason for that is, like I told you, the winds were out of the south. Manchester Airport, which is just north of Nashua, is landing and departing 1-7. And so their departures are coming right into my flight path. So they want me in my 172 the heck out of the way. And so uh, you're right. It, this was one of those days that everything was happening very, very quickly. In fact, I, I actually pre-briefed on the ground what I was going to do once I got into IMC, reviewed the approach for the RNAV at Lawrence, spent some time thinking about, okay, they're probably going to give me a vector to intercept from this side of the airport. And so I should be ready for that turn and organize the cockpit a little bit quicker, right? Because again, you're right. It, it was very, very quick. And this whole entire flight happened. It felt like forever at one point, but it was probably a 0.3 on the Hobbs meter, maybe a 0.4 or on the tack. So anyway, yeah, pretty quick flight and it all happens really, really quickly. So pick up my clearance. Pretty simple, uh, radar vectors direct. And so I text it up to the runup area, I do my runup, follow the checklist, everything is looking looking great. Airplane sounds good as usual and, and um, off I go. And so get up to the runway, get cleared for takeoff and in IMC I go at about overcast 600. So first indication that I have a problem. So I take off, level out at, I think they gave me 3000. It might have even been a little bit less than that or 2,500. Sometimes they actually give 2,500 to stay out of the way of the departures coming out of Manchester. And so I leveled off and I threw the autopilot on and that gave me a minute to sit down and review the instrument procedure and, and kind of get ready for what was next. And of course, they had given me expect the RNAV 23. And, and uh, so I've got the GPS getting set up for that. And... As I'm doing that, I'm looking through the approach procedure one more time as I've got my instrument scan going. And um, I was kind of acutely aware of anything weird with the airplane. You know, I've spent a lot of time in, in this particular 172. And so I can I can hear even the slightest pitch change. And my head's kind of on a swivel. This airplane was recently overhauled. So it's uh, got about, uh, at the time, about 80 hours on the engine. And so heads on a swivel a little bit, right? We talk about engine failures after overhaul happening early on so and i've got this beautiful new trio autopilot system and and so level out turn on the autopilot and all of a sudden the autopilot which had been working wonderfully for for weeks starts to beep at me that the servos are slipping 
And so I go, well, that's kind of odd. So I disconnect the autopilot. So I'll just take over. So now I get on the autopilot. It's still kind of beeping. It's making some noise. I'm going, oh, maybe something's wrong. So I actually turned off the autopilot system and said, all right, I'll get back to that later. I'll figure that out when I get on the ground. I get the final approach clearance and I intercept the RNAV 2-3 and I switch over to tower. And I get on the radio and I say, you know, Lawrence Tower, Skyhawk 619 is is with you on the RNAV 2-3. And all I hear is Skyhawk 619 are cleared and boom, that's when it happened. Immediately, all of my electrical system is gone. No indication, no warning, just gone. And, um, you know, this happens and I'm sitting there going, well, that was odd. And kind of doing the head scratch moment of, well, I've never really been trained for this. I, I have no idea, you know, what to expect at my glide slope indicator, which of course is no longer doing anything. So uh, it's an can approach. I stop you there, Derek? Yeah. When you had, when your electrics went totally out, did you have any kind of standby instrumentation to work off of then from an attitude perspective? Yeah, so it's really interesting you ask that question. So I have a vacuum system. So I have typical attitude indicator, typical gyro system. I have a GPS, a Garmin 696 panel mounted that has a battery, but the battery was dead. So with no electrical system, now that's not working. I also have, I fly with four flight. So I've got my iPad in front of me. And I've always been too cheap to buy a, a, a Sentry or, or one of the systems that has, you know, does give you uh, ARs, right? Backup ARs. And certainly when we get into the learning experiences, I'll, I'll tell you how I feel about that. So anyway, no, to answer your question, the only thing I have at this point, I don't have a turn coordinator. And the only thing I have is my attitude indicator, my altimeter my heading indicator, and I do have vertical speed. And so I'll tell you, that was what I went to immediately. I was on a very stable approach. The winds aloft were somewhat calm. And I immediately went to the vertical speed indicator and noticed the needle was still right around 500 feet per minute of a descent. And that was the moment that I said, boy, that vertical speed indicator just became really, really, really important because I have zero vertical guidance. I'm in the clouds. I can't squawk anything, right? The transponder is dead. Um, my handheld, and I've heard in many of your podcasts, you know, whatever's not on you is pretty much useless. Uh, my handheld is in the back seat in my flight bag, and I can't reach around and grab it because I'm afraid I'm going to get into an unusual attitude of some sort and never get out of this. I, I just have no way to, to deal with the situation. So that's what I did. I, I said, well, I'm, I'm on a good heading. I know that I had good horizontal guidance and I was straight on the nose. I knew I had good vertical guidance. I was right on the nose. At this point, I have no real reference as to where the airplane is in, in reference to the approach, right? My iPad just kind of had a general idea, but it had that we're not really sure where you are, but we think you're somewhere near here. So I didn't even, I really didn't even look at the iPad at that point. And so I held this 500 foot per minute descent rate as best I could. And it was about, you know, somewhere between five and six. It was a little bit bumpy. And all of a sudden, boom, I pop out of the clouds and they were much lower than at this point. Uh, they're about overcast five at, at this point, overcast six, somewhere right in there. And it was hard IMC. And boy, I'll tell you, I've, I've never been so excited to see a runway in my entire life. Um, <laughs> 
and landed as normal and jumped on my handheld. And, you know, I finally reached around and the tower said, are, are you all right? I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. I <laughs> uh, just had a little little electrical issue here and I'm going to taxi over to the maintenance hangar and that's where the plane sat. Wow. So interesting. You're coming down on the approach there. You lose all your electrics. You have the basics so you can maintain attitude, safety of flight in terms of, uh, you know, your attitude, your altitude, your airspeed. But what you've lost is your approach guidance. So you're really left to flying a heading, watching your VVI. And then did you just kind of transition yourself off the mindset of an LPV approach down to saying, well, I'm going to fly this heading down to LNAV minimums? Is that kind of what you were adjusting to? To be honest with you, no. At that point, the only thing that I had in my mind was I knew what the minimum was going to be on the altimeter. And I said, I'm just going to hold this heading and hold this this vertical speed because if I if I have to go missed, I'm in a world of hot water, right? I, yeah. I have no way of ever reestablishing on an approach. I have no way to get out of the clouds at this point. And by the way, the weather across the New England region that day was IFR, right? I'd be lucky to get to New York or something like that where, you know, I could actually get into some sort of marginal or some sort of VFR condition, but but I would have had to fly at an altitude that would require me to be an IMC and then still get out of IMC, right? And so I what went through my mind, Richard, was <laughs> I have to do this approach. And I, if I ever had to do a really good approach, this is one of them. And I have got to get out of the clouds on this approach. And if I don't, I don't know what's next, right? Yeah, because it's important for us listeners to remember you're also calm out at this stage. So right. it's not as if you can accept vectors back around or vectors to get to a minimum vectoring altitude or any of that stuff. Um so therein lies your stress of you've got to shoot this approach. You're calm out and, you know, you've got no approach guidance going for you. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I've never been so calm in the airplane. I just I basically told myself, you know, even if I because it went through my mind, right, I ran through as I'm holding this this 500 foot per minute descent. At this point, I've just crossed the final approach fix. So I've got some time to kind of figure this out and hold this this heading and, and this vertical speed. At the time, I'm thinking, all right, well, I've made the decision I'm going to hold this vertical speed. I've made the decision that I'm going to hold this heading, and, and so I'm, I'm going to do the approach. What I was playing in my mind at this point, I don't have to talk to anybody, so I'm not really busy, right? I don't know where I am in reference to the approach, so I'm really not busy worrying about that either, right? I'm more just interested in holding a good descent rate and, and holding a good heading. And what really was going through my mind is, okay, so what happens if I have to go missed? How bad does this get? And, you know, I started to think through, okay, where is a place nearby that has a PAR approach? Can I get there? Can I call on my cell phone? I've got a Bluetooth headset. So can I call on my cell phone and call, you know, Boston Tracon and tell them, you know, the situation if I have to go missed? My handheld is probably not going to reach Boston Tracon unless I'm at a higher enough altitude. And, and I can't even tell them what I'm doing right now. I'm just a target on their radar with no transponder, no squawk, no ADSB, no anything. Now I risk getting hit by someone in the clouds. The tops that day were, you know, probably 12 or 15,000. And so I wasn't going to, I was not going to get on top. So that's what I was running through my mind is, all right, what's next here if I do have to go missed? And, and basically what I came up with was if I have to go missed, 
I'll stabilize myself in the missed approach. I'll just follow the missed approach procedure as best as I can, not really knowing, you know, other than, you know, luckily on that missed approach procedure, they kind of give you a heading. You know, I, I would have to do my best there. And, and then I would get on the phone with Boston Tracon and use my Bluetooth there and then find a place where there's a PAR approach where at least someone could see me on primary radar and try to help me get down and out of that situation. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Now, you mentioned foreflight. I would think that would be of some help to you coming down on this approach and you could monitor your your track, your progress along the ground with foreflight, but that didn't seem to bring you much comfort. Can you go over that part again? Yeah, so basically I didn't have confidence because I don't, it, it wasn't connected to anything, right? So it's not connected to a Sentry or, or to one of the Garmin devices. It's just, you know, time and space, right? And my fear was I was so hyper-focused on for one, what's caused this? Do I have a fire somewhere? Wasn't smelling anything, so I wasn't really worried about that. I looked down at my breakers, nothing there. I reset the alternator, nothing there. And I was so hyper-focused on the scan and, and just on the instruments and flying the airplane that I was afraid if I looked down at my, my iPad, which is on a kneeboard, I was nervous that I would lose that spatial orientation that I had, right, of that very precise uh, vertical speed, the very precise heading excuse me, and not, not coming off of that. Yeah. And, you know, it's not built for it. They don't design for flight and you don't use it to fly instrument approaches. It can just be an essay builder. But I also see where you're coming from that it wasn't a part of your normal instrument scan. And especially in that scenario, taking your head away from the primary flight instruments, you know, could have caused you an issue there on the approach in close proximity to the ground. Yeah, you got it. Well, so a good sight when when you get down and you start breaking out below the clouds and you see the runway. When you saw the runway, was it pretty much ahead of you? Were you pretty close to the approach? Yeah, I was pretty close, a little off the horizontal track, right? The wind had blown me around, and, and again, I'm holding just a heading. Yeah. I think I had only one red on, on the Pappy, so... I was a little bit high, which I was okay with, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, better than better than coming out of the clouds and seeing four red pappies. That that probably wouldn't have made me feel too good. Yeah. But but it told me that you know I held that 500 foot per minute, and and I think the standard for a RNAV approach is about 600. So I was probably a little bit high, probably a little bit slower in the descent, and that and that was okay. I, I was happy with that. But yeah, a little bit off on on the on the horizontal. I, I remember not being on center line and having to having to adjust for that when I came out of the clouds. So you say when you did come out of the clouds, you saw a, a pretty normal pappy or vasi. So how far were you from the runway when you broke out? Um, it felt like I was right on top of it because I was so excited to see the runway. I was probably on a on a mile final, maybe. Yeah, I I wasn't overly far away. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself, uh, the mins for this approach, I, I think, are 550 or somewhere in there. And um, and I remember thinking to myself, as I'm watching the altimeter cross 700, 
and I'm just now starting to get ground contact. I was getting nervous, man. This is this is coming down. This this uh, this weather is is coming down. And gosh, I wish I had that vertical guidance right now. Yeah. Did you ever figure out what happened? What caused the electrical failure? I sure did, and that's why I share this story with folks I meet that fly IMC. So I had mentioned that I had recently had an overhaul, and you can consider this a lesson learned as well, but but I uh, recently had an overhaul of the engine, about 80 hours on it, and during the overhaul time, I was asked, do you want a new alternator? And I was already up to about $28,000 for the, for the overhaul. And I had remembered reading in my logbook for the airplane that that was a new alternator. You know, it was in a flight school, so parts and pieces get replaced all the time. And that I had a new alternator in there, a newer alternator. And so in my mind, I said, well, only two or 300 hours on that alternator. It doesn't make sense to replace it. Well, that was actually incorrect. It, it was much, much higher. I read a different logbook entry for something different. It had something else in my mind. And uh, so I had made an assumption that that alternator was good. And so I told the, the shop that, uh, you know, was sending my engine back. No, I don't, you know, don't need any more accessories. I have everything I need. And, and so it turned out that the alternator was kind of reaching. There's kind of two theories here. One, the alternator is reaching its end of life. And so it's failing. The other theory is, and this was kind of the IA that, that actually worked on the plane after I landed after the incident, was that the alternator cable itself, the main cable, there's a stud in the back of the alternator. Actually, the cable wasn't connected just right. And uh, if that happens, it causes it to arc. And so actually, after I landed, I smelt this you know, electrical burning smell, and it turned out that the back of the alternator basically melted into molten alternator. It was burning and smoldering and um, a real mess. So there's one of two theories. One, the alternator was too old and, you know, it's a plain power alternator. And so you don't hear of that too much that they just, you know, one day fail and everything just shuts off and that, that maybe the cable wasn't just right. The interesting part about how that occurred and how I didn't catch it is I had just replaced the battery in the airplane with one of those new batteries that forever hold the charge. And at the same time, I had just had the autopilot installed. And so the day before this flight, I had flown the airplane back from Virginia after having the autopilot installed. The IA that looked at the airplane said, I probably flew on battery for most of my flight from Virginia and didn't know it. And the reason I didn't know it is my ammeter was actually stuck at just above positive and was broken and i had no indication of knowing that and so Mm. basically once i got into the clouds the first indication that there was something wrong of low battery power was the servos slipping on the autopilot they couldn't it couldn't hold it yeah so uh catastrophic failure of the alternator and you know it's that swiss cheese effect that we all talk about right it's every hole aligns and the only one that didn't align that has me here talking about this is I didn't have a vacuum failure or some other type of uh, gyro failure or something that would have caused me to to come out of the clouds in a much different way. Yeah. So you asked about lessons learned, a couple of lessons learned. The first one is as quick of a flight as this is, and I'm extremely instrument proficient, right? At least in my opinion. And so for me, taking this IFR flight is just no big deal. This is normal. This is something that I do on a normal occasion. 
but I had the logbooks in my car. I, I could have driven over to Lawrence, right? And it would have probably would have been the same amount of time. By the time I pre-flight and get in the air, probably would have taken me the same amount of time to get there and get back by car, right? So sometimes, you know, it's one of those things that, hey, you know, if you can if you can do it just as easy by car, maybe you don't have to go in IMC that day, right? So so that that led me to kind of question those moments of, oh, hey, I got this. I fly in IMC all the time. Of course I know how to do this. So it, it causes me a little bit of pause in the future. The other lesson learned was, listen to your IA, right? So when the IA was doing the overhaul and said, hey, you know, you should probably think about getting a new alternator. At that point, the counter argument was, you're already $28,000 into this overhaul. What's another $600, right? Well, and it's a valid argument, though, because having, you know, being an it aircraft is. owner myself, you start opening that door where you go, well, while you're in there, do this. And while you're in there, do that. The next thing you know, you just keep adding up all these dollar signs. So it's a legitimate issue that you were dealing with mentally, you know, totally. Yeah. I, all Every aircraft owner can identify with that decision you made. Why and remind me again? Why did he say the alternator should be replaced? He just thought it looked older. So it was kind of standard practice for that particular IA, um, you know, to replace the accessories on the engine, unless you know, in the logbook it was you know replaced two hundred hours ago or something like that. And in this particular case, he he said, I think it's been a long time since that alternator's there. We we're talking on the phone, and and I said, no, 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 that that alternator was recently replaced and. Actually, the alternator that was recently replaced was my air coupe alternator. So too many planes, and I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. you know. hey, well, here I am. I'm defending the the pre-incident you as an airplane owner going, I just spent a lot of money on this engine. I have no indication that this alternator is bad. There's no time service or time associated with it of why I should change it. Right. I got to tell you, I would not have changed it either if I were in your shoes. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'll tell you what, um, I don't know if, posed the same problem today. I think the only thing I would change is I, I'd go and pull the logbooks and not just do it off my, what I think is my super memory, right? Yeah, um, maybe that's the lesson learned, right? When he said, look at changing it, then you go verify. So okay, yeah. that seems like a good lesson learned to take away. Yeah. The second piece was you can never have enough backups to the backups. Funny, I had always put off buying a, a Sentry. And that night I went home uh, after, of course, getting picked up at the airport, and I went right on to Sporties and ordered a Sentry, and lo and behold, that week, they were on sale. So sometimes everything happens for a reason, <laughs> and I've just told myself, you know, if that ever happened again, at least I would have some type of more precise guidance with with ARs on my iPad. The other thing I did was I replaced that battery in that Garmin 696. That Garmin 696 is really dependable, has weather, Sirius XM weather in it. It also will overlay your airplane on the approach using the antennas that it's connected to and that it has internally. And so, boy, I wish I had that, right? So for the extra $200, just replace the, the battery in the back and, and have that. But I think the biggest lesson learned out of all of this is that it's a pre-flight item, checklist item to check the alternator belt tension, something we always do, make sure the alternator is connected, move that metal arm around. It doesn't tell you to, to feel around and see what the wires are doing, right? T touch. Had I just kind of reached back there and jiggled that wire a little bit, I would have seen that it was loose and I wouldn't have flown. Maybe that's an added step in an IFR flight, you know? Yeah. Something that 
maybe you don't need to worry about if you're doing a VMC flight VFR day, but that added precaution going into IFR scenario maybe is a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 so I've added two things to the checklist, right? It's that. And then um, calibrate your Sentry AHARs before you take off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you had that Garmin there and you just didn't have the battery. It's, you know, we all fall victim to it. You buy this capability and then, but you have to keep it up to achieve all that capability that you bought. And especially when you're in IFR flying like you are, single pilot, IFR is demanding flying. To me, it is. Even as much as I've done it, you just have to be on your game. You can't afford to lose situational awareness of where you are, your aircraft attitude, or how your systems are set up or anything. And so, you know, being able to buy those little things that enable you to continue being ahead of the airplane are pretty important. Yeah, you you got it. And, you know, it's the little things that count, right? And then all of a sudden it turns into this much bigger event because you've skimped out, I guess, on some of the little things. I will say I wouldn't have changed, even though I now question myself a little bit, I think I'd still go on that flight today. The only difference is, is I've got backup systems now. And uh, that I'm more comfortable with, and I check that little wire uh, every time. Yeah. You know what I think this helps illustrate, too, is understanding where your single point failures are or where you're very thinly threaded. In other words, just knowing what that risk is. And in your case, it was, hey, if I if I do lose electrical failure here for whatever reason, I'm not going to have any kind of approach guidance. I have no backup for that. Okay, let me think through that, either rethink my plan to go or think, you know, mitigating options. And so for each of us, that's probably different in each of our airplanes. Where are we single threaded that if that particular thing fails, I'm in big trouble for all of us. It's our engine, right? (laughs) The engine fails for all of us who fly single engine aircraft. Okay, that's that's one. But beyond that, the systems that we have in place, especially if we're flying IFR and IMC conditions, understanding that and putting mitigations in place to me seems like a big lesson learned coming out of this event. Yeah, you, you got it. You know, we, we train for the alternator light comes on and you're, you're having a power situation where you have an alternator failure or the alternator breaker pops, right? We train for that, shut everything off, except for the things you need most, make sure there's not a fire. What we don't train for is just complete catastrophic failure with no pre-warning. And so when everything shuts off, that's when you need those backups the most. And because of the way that we train, right, we forget about the necessity of having those backups, right? We go, well, we'll just shut everything off and we'll get on the ground immediately. Well, not not practical, right? If it gets worse, um, if you, you know, you miss an approach or you go missed, right? Now you have no backups, right? So very, very valid point, especially after being in this situation. Yeah, and another good lesson learned that comes here is the early indicator was your autopilot, the servo slipping, right? And you had just flown it, autopilot worked fine. Now here you are, and suddenly the servos are slipping. I suspect if you'd have been on a longer flight, like you had two hours to go, you would have been able to sit there and go, hmm, why is this? This doesn't make any sense. And you'd have been able to analyze that. But this was a short flight. You're in IMC conditions. You're talking to Boston. You really didn't have much time to do that. You just said, okay, I'll deal with that later. And that was actually an indicator to you that there was a bigger problem. You just didn't have time to assess it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, so 
Interesting. Well, thankfully, you kept your cool when you were on the, you lost electrics at a really tough time on the approach there and uh, just said, okay, what do I do have? I do have my vertical guidance and my attitude and heading, which is a good thing. And you use those to a successful outcome, which is nice head work on your part. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly is one of those moments you don't train for. It's certainly one of those moments that really makes you, once you get on the ground, sit there and go, wow, that was really interesting. And I, and I'll tell you, I don't think reality hit when I was standing on the ground that how bad (laughs) that actually could have been. Yeah. I flew out of it and lived to tell about it, but goodness gracious, one tiny little change to anything that I've just talked about. And I may not be here talking about it. Yeah. And I know every time I fly an instrument approach in IMC conditions, as much as I've done it, every time when I break out and I see the runway, it's such a good feeling for a bunch of reasons. You know, your systems work, your knowledge and your skills worked. You went through this thing and saw nothing but instruments and needles and numbers. And there you are as a runway is emerging out your windscreen. I just I just love that sight and that feeling. I can imagine on this particular day, that was an especially good sight and good feeling that you were having. Yeah, I've, um, I'll tell you that I'm with you. That's one of the best feelings of IFR flying is watching that beautiful runway pop out of the clouds. But boy, I had to do everything I could not to open up my door and hug that runway. Uh, <laughs> as I'm taxing off, I go, that is, that is one of the best sights I've ever seen. And actually, just prior to seeing the runway, the best sight I saw was, was the lights, right? I started to get the lights to yeah. ground contact and I went, oh, I'm going to get out of this, right? But I didn't, yeah. even though I said that to myself, I didn't get complacent that, you know, because I knew it could change at any second. So, yeah. but it was that moment of I'm going to get out of this. I'm, I'm going to get this on the ground. So, Well, Derek, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story. Some good lessons learned that come out of that for people that fly IFR and IMC conditions and things to think about happy to do it and happy to share the story and I hope it helps someone else uh, not get into the same situation. So nice job, Derek, of dealing with that scenario at a pretty tenuous time on the approach. Suddenly loses all of his electrical power and he quickly transitions to what he does have. And he uses what he does have to a successful end and that's a good lesson for all of us to be ready, be flexible, to use the skills that we have and adapt to the situation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. <laughs>